2: Welcome to Far Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pump. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 113. We're keeping it short and sweet this week, with a bit of flash fiction and a short story. We were fortunate enough to receive both during our first-ever submissions period in January, and we remind anyone who is interested that our current submission period extends through the end of this month. So, show us what you've got. Now let's begin the fun with River Boys by Stephen S. Power. Stephen's work has recently appeared at A.E., Daily Science Fiction and Flash Fiction Online, and he has stories forthcoming in Amazing Stories, Deep Magic and Lightspeed. His novel, The Dragon Round, will be published by Simon & Schuster on July 19th and is available for pre-order. He lives in Maplewood, New Jersey and can be found online via the links in our show notes. His story is read by a newcomer to Farfetched Fables, and I do hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, Golshik Narasimhan, a management consultant by day and a writer by night, with a keen interest in psychedelics and role playing video games. You can also find him online via the show notes. And now, River Boys by Stephen S. Power.
3: The river gives our village food and blood, breath and beat, and one evening, it gave us a boy. A girl named Minu found him on a coracle caught on a mossy bank upstream. She didn't recognize the weave of his boat or the cloth knotted at his hips. He was terribly thin. He couldn't speak or open his eyes. He only pointed at his mouth. She helped him onto shore and laid his head across her lap. As the river shares with us, we must share with others. So Minu fed the boy a pinch of the fish balls she'd brought in a blue and white cloth. He took her wrist with a slippery hand and sucked her fingertips clean. He seemed to fill out as she watched. Then he pointed at his mouth again. She looked toward the village and, seeing no one coming, she fed the boy another fish ball. And another. In a few moments, he'd eaten them all. When he let go of her wrist and pointed at his mouth, Minu held up the empty cloth and shook it. His eyes sprang wide. They were mud-brown and raging like the river under a storm. Minu gasped, fell into them, and drowned. As the river gives all to us, we give ourselves to the river. A boy named Kua knew this. He'd given his grandmother to the river, as you too will do some day, But that day he forgot it. Kua had planned to meet Minu on the bank to weave stories from the shadows in the water, and so he hoped to weave stories from the shadows in their hearts. When he found the boy instead of Minu, he didn't see the river in his eyes. He did, however, recognize the cloth that had held the fish balls. Kua ran at the boy, who pointed at his mouth. Kua dragged him to feet and asked what he'd done with Minu. The boy snapped his body like a fish, and Kua's hand slid off his slippery skin. The boy dove want his coracle, driving it into the river, and he floated downstream. Kua chased him along the bank, but no one can outrun the river. As Kua neared the village, Minu's father heard his shouting on the river's breath. He saw the boy floating by. Minu's father didn't know him either, but he did know Kua, so Minu's father paddled after the boy in his own coracle. When the boy wouldn't stop, for the river never stops, Minu's father speared him like a carp through the throat. Kua met Minu's father on the rocky bank downstream where he paddled both coracles. Blood as brown as the river after a storm raged from the boy's throat. The boy couldn't speak. He pointed at his chest. Kua placed an ear to it. Two hearts beat, then none. They gave him to the river, which afterwards tasted brackish to them. Their coracles couldn't keep the river out. They caught few fish. And those they did had Mino's face. Soon they were driven from the village before their ill luck spread. They wouldn't be given to the river. Their ghosts would wander the trees. The river gives our village food and blood, breath and beat. So we must be ready when it gives us a boy again.
0: and Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
2: As with many things in life, the river gives and the river takes away, dear listener. We're going to close this episode with a story called Skin Like Carapace by Stephen Toes. Steve lives in North Yorkshire, England, and occasionally Munich in Germany. His stories tend towards the unsettling and unreal, and his work has appeared in the Best Horror of the Year Anthology 6, Cabinet Defees Scheherazade's Bequest, Innsmouth Magazine, Not One of Us, and Café Irial, amongst others. To read more of Steve's work, please visit the link in our show notes. Steve's tale is read by Rob Matheny, who is also a newcomer to the Triple F. Rob is a Salem, Oregon-based producer, voice guy, book fiend, metalhead, as well as the host of the Grim Tidings podcast. You can find him on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the handle Rob Matheny80. And now, Skin Like Catapace by Stephen Toes.
1: I sleep shallow, and my memories whisper in my ear. They're hand on my shoulder, so I cannot evade them. They speak to me of the first time I came to the market of fragrance. Sixteen years old, and face bare apart from one aged branch carved above the broken brow of my nose. I pay them no heed, but it's hard. Hard to ignore the first taste of the air surrounding the market, then and still the greatest wonder of the land of no light. Here you can buy powders to stain your skin with the scent of fly agaric and birch bark, or smoke to disguise you as a freshwater pool to hide from violent and determined creditors. Every day, between the fourth and the fifth bell, dancers gather on the cobbled square. Each one is bathed since birth in a different essence. They weave their scents into epic stories of the origins of the four royal houses and the specters whose tattered odors is carried on the wind. Those who brush against the dancers never clean that patch of skin and carry the story on them throughout their lives. If I concentrate, I can still smell the tang of blood from my scuffed knees and feel the sting from picking pea grit from my scabs. Those times when my voice was too cracked to keep me on my feet. But those scars were trivial. With the help of the older traders, I soon learned to navigate between the stalls by the click of my tongue and the brush of fungus that grew on the worn oak boards. That was a long time ago, and now I am not a young man. I sit in the center of the market in a patch of crumbled marsh salt and tall wild garlic. No one can enter without the royal warrant, and no one can leave without being turned to silence. I can hardly smell the market now. The anise, cinnamon, and sage no longer reach me, drowned out by the perfumes leaking from my body and staining my clothes. Some time has passed since the Royal Guards brought me here, how much I'm no longer sure. I've tried to keep track of the bells, of the ebb and flow of trading. Each session flows into the other, and I lose track so easily. It was an accident. I think they know that, so they guided me here with gentle hands rather than dragging me in chains. The day was hot, and my hands sweated up as I poured oils and tinctures. That was why the bottle slipped from my grip. The embossed glass smashed and split the queen's scent over the poor girl walking by, soaking her rags with frankincense and saffron, sandalwood, and ambergris. Sellers and buyers alike approached her, smelling the perfumes of their regent, grasping her clothes and running their fingers across her forehead, surprise overriding any sense of etiquette. Instead of the arcing inscription scars of the royal family, they felt only shallow indentions of the house with no name. Their hands found no silk-threaded embroidery, no pearls warming to their touch, or alencon lace finer than breath, only the tattered rags of a starving girl. Rumors spread of the queen appearing in the market wearing tattered linen and ash to grit her skin, skin that was cold to the touch from the lack of fine robes. Seven satires were composed by street musicians and four characters carved into soapstone each coated with a wash of frankincense and wood ash. After I was taken, no one knew or asked what happened to the girl, but not an hour goes past when I don't think of her and my collusion in her fate. There is still time for me to run, to hide, to take handfuls of river mud and scrub my skin until my scent is worn away. I could conceal myself between footsteps and speech, an outlaw. But who would I be then, a perfumer with no scent? To run would mean never smelling the haze of the market again, "'never becoming drunk on the mix of musk and oak moss. "'Instead I will wait for the judgment of the queen "'and hope she is merciful. "'I am not a young man, and I am too tired to run. "'I listen as the queen's justice approaches, "'trailed by her twelve servants. First, they walk across the cloister, "'where trinkets of lavender are sold from rough-worn blankets. "'Their feet crunch on sand made of a million empty seashells. "'Next they cross the gravel path, I can hear mumbles of conversation and their boots scuff up small sprays of grit. They pass through the cobbled square, smooth soles slipping on the rounded stones. They are talking about me, though I know any decisions will have already been made. As one creature, they cross the turf to stand around me. Their breath is controlled and shallow. I can taste it on the air, pungent with alcohol and kalalaza. The Queen's Justice approaches the garlic patch, crushing the plants underfoot and leaning in close. Reaching up, I run the pad of my palm across the woman's face. I feel where age and the inscriber's chisel have turned her beautiful, marking out her life. First I trace the lines of her office, the curving fronds of the royal seal, then the tree of age rising up the center of her forehead, following the inscription marking journeys and lovers. Finally I bring my hand down to her mouth, touching the impressions, marking each laugh and frown. The justice returns the greeting, her long fingers reading the carving across my face pushing into my beard to the touch the scars hidden on my cheeks. She grips my neck just under my chin. My mistress could have turned you to silence, your scent around the dirt underfoot and your marks wiped from all memory, the justice says. Instead she will give you a chance to redeem yourself, succeed and you can return to your work, though you will never again serve the royal court. Fail, and you will be turned to silence. And if I don't accept, I say, although I know the answer, the justice says nothing. I tense my neck muscles in acknowledgement, and the Justice lets her hand smile against my skin. Before the end of the trading, you must answer this question. What is everywhere, yet has no scent? Then there is just the sound of breathing, and I listen as the Justice and her twelve servants leave. There is still time to run, but I am not a young man, and I have no heart for it. Left alone, I think over her words and think over the riddle. The question makes no sense. I am a master perfumer in the market of fragrance, and we are taught young that everything has a scent, and we learn young how to extract it. We can take tinctures from fossilized shells, from your lover's touch, from your child's amniotic soaked first breath, and your lover's regret laden last. There is nothing in the land of no light absent of scent. And knowing this, I start to prepare myself for silence. I am not a young man, and maybe it is time to no longer be. Yet I try to ignore the hopelessness of my situation, and ask those who pass by my confinement, I speak to traders who gather, because they have known me since I first stumbled between their bouquets of dried flowers, and I ask those who gather out of morbid curiosity. No one has an answer for me. They drift away through guilt. Though the causes of their conscience are a world apart, I find myself alone again and try to come up with an answer, but every object and creature I bring to mind has its own taint and stench. With no hope left, I sit listening to and inhaling from my home for one last time. I hear her first, shuffling at the limit of my internment. She smells of condensation and death-watch beetles. You must leave, I say in a whisper. I don't want another life on my conscience, even as I teeter at the edge of losing my own. I can answer the riddle for you, she says. Her voice sounds like the throwing of bones, dissected and rotten. She moves closer and takes my wrist. Her skin is as smooth as a carapace. She runs my hand across her face, and I find nothing. No marks of office or inscriptions of achievement, no engravings or shared jokes and private sorrows, just blank, smooth, flesh stretched across bone, taut with emptiness. Bile rises from my stomach as my hand finds her face bare of marks. I can feel the acid burn my throat and taste it age my teeth. No one is without a past or story. Even newborns carry the scars of birth, yet her face is absent of all this. From the set of her jaw and razor cut of her cheekbones, I know she is no child. I want to take handfuls of grit and scrub my palms down to the bone in case whatever disease afflicts her, whatever curse that has wiped her skin embryo clean, infects me. Better to let flames lick and blister my skin into strands of living liquid than touch her face. I try to bury my disgust and carry on, though she cannot be ignorant of my feelings. I am not a young man and have never been good at hiding my emotions. I bring my hand over her mouth and feel no breath, only the wet, slow touch of her lips against my fingers. Trying not to flinch, I take hold of her wrist and bring her hand and turn to my face, letting her read me, her touch is slow and invasive. It takes all of my will not to run as far as the entangled plants and crushed salt will let me. "'I can answer your riddle for you,' she says again, her voice no warmer. "'And what do I give in return? "'If you don't get the answer, you will be reduced to silence.' Surely any price I ask of you will be less than that. I think on this, and am not convinced she speaks the truth, but hers is the only help that has come, and I have never claimed to be wise. I place her hands on my neck and tense my muscles in agreement. She clasps my hand, fingers through between fingers, and moves our grip to the oath scar on my left cheek. She speaks first. I pause, unsure if I have heard correctly, then repeat the words. I swear that if the answer saves me from silence, we will be married. I am a master perfumer, and know any answer given will be wrong. She leans in close and whispers the solution to me. I know as she speaks that this woman has no history, no inscriptions or crow's feet to bring beauty to her face, has given me the correct answer to save me from being reduced to silence. In that moment I know, if I give her answer to the Queen's justice, then I will be released from my confinement, and this woman will be my wife. I will leave now, and return as your betrothed after you have given your answer to the Queen's justice, she says and I listen to her go. Do not think that I am not considering giving the wrong answer. What value are honor and oaths when I will no longer exist to care? But something stops me, and instead I sit waiting for the end of the market and the Queen's Justice to return. They come as the sound of bartering lulls. I know the traders and sellers are waiting to hear my fate. I can taste them breathing, though they still their lungs. The Queen's Justice and her servants have scorched corpse hair and animal pelts against hot stones, and dressed themselves in the smoke. They mute their shoes, but to me they sound like a storm gathering. The justice steps onto the salt and wild garlic, and we exchange greetings. Do you have an answer for me? she says. And for a moment I think I detect a hint of regret in her voice as she places her hand against my neck. I tense my muscles. What is everywhere and has no scent? I caution you to answer carefully, as only one answer can be given. I pause. Some think I do this for effect but I am not a young man, and it takes time to gather my thoughts. Sound, I say. A gasp goes through the crowd like an echo, starting with the Queen's Justice and spreading backwards to the far reaches of the market. The next few moments feel like an anticlimax, even for me, who can now go on living. The Justice takes my hand and leads me on from my confinement, and the Inscriber is called forward to add a new mark to my face. It takes much searching to find the symbol. Many markets have met since anyone left the garlic alive. Certainly it has not happened in my time. The blood from my new scars remind me of scuffed knees all those markets ago. I allow myself a moment of relief, but it is short-lived. Where is my husband to be? My savior calls out from the cobble square. I think about ignoring her. The punishment for oath-breaking is a loss of a hand. Surely that is less of a burden than a wife I do not want. A wife who is so without experience that she does not bear one mark. Then I hear her cry taken up by others. Where is this woman's husband to be? And the gossips go to ask her story. Before long the market is noxious with it. I have little choice but to approach her and acknowledge my oath. The wedding is short and over quickly, and I do not wish to dwell on it here. She moves into my home, and I feel like she's everywhere. I go to bury my clothes and boots, stained as they are with the herb of silence and brittle salt. When I leave her alone, she recovers them, and I resent her for it. We bed down in separate rooms. I say my back hurts, or my hands are so soaked in tinctures that they will burn her skin if we embrace. While she sleeps, I dab diluted perfume behind her ears, too subtle for most to sense, even my new bride, but I can smell it and leave any room she enters. I do not want to convulse in her presence. I am disgusted by her, but I am not a young man, and I try to hold on to some manners. This way I can carry on as before, though another perfumer dresses the queen's skin. "'a small price compared to others I pay. "'She asks to come to the market with me "'to sell scents to the gentry and crush spices for me. "'Imagine how many beautiful perfumes you could make "'with two of us working on your stall,' she says. "'Not today,' I say. "'I have a delivery of herbs coming, "'and there is little enough space for me. "'I am mixing today. "'If you knock over the tinctures, our livelihood will be gone. "'I have an important buyer coming, "'and I need to give him my full attention. "'She does not believe these excuses, and neither do I.' How can I tell her that if she comes to the market and someone exchanged greetings with her, I would be a laughingstock? I have little enough trade as it is. Few want to buy for me in case the taint of silence has slipped into my fragrances. Instead, she stays in the house and cooks and cleans. I come home, and the house reeks with the scent of balms she rubs into bruises from moving around the unfamiliar rooms. Yet I cannot deny she cares for me well and shows interest in my work. I start bringing bottles of essence home and teaching them to her, help her learn sandalwood from saffron and rosemary from rosehip. Though my tolerance for her in my life grows, I still cannot bear for that unmarked skin to touch me and flinch away when her hand goes to rest on my arm. I smell tears as I walk in, a slight tang in the cold air of the house. It takes time to find her, curled up by the side of her bed. I ask what is wrong. She says nothing. Without thinking, without giving my revulsion time to overrule my instinct, I hold her hand, Stroking the back of her fingers, I lean in and kiss her cheek. She still does not move, but her back is less tense. At a loss of how else to help, I go into the kitchen and prepare a meal for her. I do not know what to say to take the sadness away, so instead I steam fish and mushrooms and pour a small glass of wine before leading her to the table. Still, she says nothing. I place the fork in her hand, spear the scales of the fish and bring it up to her mouth. Still, she says nothing but when my hand brushes her face, her cheeks are dry, and I am sure she is smiling. It's been a while since I've prepared food, I say. Have I removed all the bones? There are no bones, but something is missing. My heart sinks. The fish is a bit dry, she says. It needs butter. I go to the cupboard and bring the butter to the table, cutting off a slice and letting it settle on her fish. I hear her chew, then she pauses. Has the butter made it more palatable, I ask. There is still something quite not right she says. This butter is unsalted. It needs a little salt. But I have no salt here, I say, disappointed to have let her down. Reach under your bed and get your old clothes. I climb up, groping around for the shirt and trousers. Amongst the mud I find a little salt. When I come back to the kitchen, she is melting butter, and I crumble in the crystals. I hear her dip the spoon and taste the butter, then sigh. What's wrong? I ask. There's still something missing, she says. I wait for her to speak again. I want her to enjoy this meal. She deserves some happiness, I think to myself. A pinch or two of wild garlic would make it perfect. I don't keep garlic, I say. Surely there will be a few leaves stuck in the folds of your clothes. I find the garments on the floor. The leaves are old yet still pungent, enough to stain my fingers. I find three and take them across to where she tends the pan, break them into pieces, and drop them into the now salty butter." As the cooking stones warm, the acrid mixture rises around us, sticking to our face and hair. I stand behind her and put my arms around her waist. Her fingertips change first, calluses erupting through the skin. She is a musician, left-handed, and her touch knows the caress of strings, shaping the air itself. Veins rise in her hand, thick and strong. I place my hand against her cheek, slick with condensation. Marks put there by the inscriber's chisel spread. Each one rises like the scent of leaves crushed between mortar and pestle, and as with the most aromatic of herbs, my breath catches in my throat. The branches on her forehead are many, but less than mine. I find the scar of where she grew up, and the journeys she made to come to the market, what her trade is, and how many honors she has been awarded. I want to tell her how beautiful she is, but words evade me. All I can hear is her breathing. All I can taste is her breath, tinged with honeysuckle and jasmine. Lines appear around her eyes like footprints in clay. They tell me more of her life has been spent laughing than crying, though there is deep sorrow held on her face, too. On her left cheek, three marks for children born. On her right, two for those who did not survive. My touch explores her face, and the reality of my cruelty is laid before me. It is her turn to kiss away my tears. I find my tongue and speak quiet apologies. She kisses these away, too. Later, when she sleeps, I wipe the perfume from behind her ears. "'Ours is a marriage of things not said and things not asked. "'But I am not a young man, and I am content. "'And though it is one of the things never said or asked, "'I think she is content, too.'"
2: We particularly enjoyed the way Steve was able to render the sense of smell with words— which is not often an easy thing to do. It reminded me of Patrick Susskind's memorable novel Perfume, the story of a murderer. If you haven't read it, consider adding it to your summer reading list. Definitely to be recommended. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. We love hearing from our listeners, and we want to know your thoughts on our content. Please remember that Far-Fetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 License, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but you can't change it and you can't sell it. And be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. Violators will be given to the river. And with that, my dear listeners, I shall close. I'll see you all next week for another exciting instalment. Bye now.